1: If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who
0: knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. How you doing there? It is the podcast. What a week, my God. I am still down in Argentina. The lads are in London and we have, to make sense of all this, maybe the most distinguished person to be on the podcast yet, that's Professor Diane Coyle. Now, Diane is a regular at Kilcanomics, so you know the score. Most of you who have heard about Kilcanomics or been to Kilcanomics will know that it's about Taking economics, the hard stuff, but also making it a little bit more accessible. We're going to be talking about Brexit. Diane is a professor of Cambridge. She's a presenter on BBC Radio 4. She's a member of the BBC Radio Trust. She was a member of the UK Competition Commission. Now, this is an economist with serious, serious pedigree. She is an OBE and a CBE. Now, these are big awards over in the UK, and she runs an amazing festival called the Festival of Economics in Bristol every November. Diane, you are very welcome to the podcast. How are you?
1: I'm well, thank you, and honoured to be here talking to you. Now,
0: Diane, tell me, what does it feel like in the UK in the last couple of days?
1: Bit of a a sense of shock, really. I mean, of course, I live in uh, one of the urban bubbles. Um, I live in London, I spend a lot of time in Cambridge, and these are the places that voted remain Labour, so there are Labour MPs around, and the whole rest of the country has turned blue voting for
0: Boris Johnson. So explain to me what do you think? I mean you've you've been studying UK economics for years, you've been part of the conversation for a long time, your professor came. What do you think happened? How do you explain this?
1: I think it's a combination of two things. One is that the opposition party in this election was just absolutely rubbish. So I think they, the Labour Party lost it much more than the Conservative Party won it. But the other thing is that this uh, taps into some very ancient chickens coming home to roost. The old Labour heartlands of the north of England are the ones that turned, that have swung to the Conservatives in a, a substantial way. I grew up in one of these areas. I grew up in the northwest of England. Uh, when I left in 1978, all of the mills were busy closing down. Industry was being decimated. The recession in the early 80s and then again in the early 90s just laid waste to the economy of these areas. And it's been getting worse ever since. So if you layer on top of that um, that quite old pain, what happened post-financial crisis and austerity, you know, somebody said austerity is the, the argument that The uh, global financial crisis was caused by Wolverhampton having too many libraries and they had to be closed down. So all of the public service cuts have landed in the same places that had devastated economies anyway, that relied on public sector employment. Uh, Incomes in the UK have not gone up for 10 years. So there's just an immense amount of anger. And, And it's directed against, you know, the quotes, the metropolitan elites, against folks like me.
0: But, Diane, how can somebody like Boris Johnson, who is the metropolitan elite, how can he, and he's been a Tory who were at the vanguard of the austerity, and not in the austerity, but actually uh, closing down the mills, you might argue, how can someone like Johnson tap in to a post-industrial worker in Bury or in Sunderland or in the West Midlands? What's going on?
1: I think he's a bit of a blank slate that people can project onto. You know, he's a bit of a laugh. He he's been on comedy shows on TV. He's a very familiar face, and I think he's one of those people who can be anything to anybody, and that's great for campaigning. Uh, I I just wonder what kind of Boris Johnson we're going to get as Prime Minister and governing, because of course the challenges now uh, for the next five years, this majority is going to last for five years. They're going to have to face up to some of these really difficult challenges, and he is going to have to decide what kind of government it is. And it simply is not clear at the moment. As mayor of London he was very socially liberal, open to immigration, and then he became a very hard Brexit person, so we don't know which of those versions we're going to get. And I, I guess it depends what kind of choice he makes and what kind of people he surrounds himself with. But I think we could be in for some quite quite turbulent times politically.
0: Look, let's let's have a look. What what do you what's your sense now? Because I'm reading this two ways. I'm reading, you know, one is that because he has such a massive majority, that kind of liberates him from the more extreme right, the ERGs, who were basically calling the tune, let's say, for the last six months. And if we focus specifically on Brexit, it means that he might be liberated to do a deal with the EU in the next 12 to 18 months. He says 12, maybe 18 months. That looks like Brexit in name only. What do you think of that idea?
1: This is certainly what people are talking about. I've got no special in to the Conservative Party or the folks in government who, who are dealing with Brexit. But this seems a very plausible argument. I mean, he's not a stupid man. He understands that the economic uh, harm that would be caused by anything like a hard Brexit in reality um, is is b- better avoided. And particularly in this context where the economy's not been growing very strongly because of all the uncertainty there are food banks and rough sleepers and so on. This is not a context in which you want to create a recession if you can avoid it.
0: So can you explain to me, what is Johnsonism? I'm down in Argentina, and I know it sounds very far-fetched, but my Argentinian friends who are familiar with the UK, you'll know Martin Lusteau, you'd have met him at uh, Kilconomics. Indeed. Who was the, he was the economics minister down here in Argentina. He's saying, a lot of them are saying, this looks like sort of posh Peronism for them. You know, it's a posh boy with, with Peronistic urges to be everything to all men, to be nationalist. when He wants to be nationalist, to be patriotic. Because if he's got to get the people who of the north of England to vote for him, he can't simply be a low-tax, low-welfare guy, original Tory. He has to be something else. What, what do you think Johnsonism is going to look like?
1: Uh, well, you know, we've had a country run by old Etonians for decades now. I don't think there's anything particularly new about that and the the Etonian and Oxbridge grip on government. And in a sense, I think that's a challenge from the anger that's felt in the north of England and in the old rust belts of Wales and Scotland as well. So he's got this very difficult balancing act to carry off and I can't see it succeeding, I have to say. You know, there are some obvious similarities with Trumpism. He's been playing the game of the dog whistles about about immigration. So he might go that way. But he's also got the globalist, low tax, let's be Singapore on Thames kind of Tories to keep happy as well. So, you know, I think there's just great uncertainty about what kind of government it's going to be. I do think they understand that politically they have to respond to the chasm between the thriving metropolitan areas in the rest of the country. that The left, quote is left behind hands, So we will see some action on that. I think he probably does understand that a better Brexit deal would be a really good idea um, now that he's got the cover of a big majority. Other than that, I think it's just incredibly hard to say at the moment how it's all going to turn out.
0: So let's just look at the forces behind Brexit, the forces behind Johnson. What you have, obviously, is two distinct forces on the island of Britain. We'll talk about Northern Ireland in a second. But on the island of Britain, you have Scottish nationalism and English nationalism coming really on a collision course now. The Tories win hands down in England. The Scottish Nats win hands down in Scotland.
1: Mm. How is that going to play out? Somebody said that the electoral map of Britain now looks like a smurf that's been in a fight. It's mainly blue, it's got some red patches and it's a yellow hat. It's all looking a bit beaten up. Um, the obvious speculation is that the um, is that Scotland will ask for another independence referendum. Uh, I think it's quite likely that the government will just say, no, you've had one of those already, go away again. There'll be tension about that in the House of Commons, but you can't really argue with the kind of majority that the Johnson government has got in the House of Commons. So there'll be a, a lot of noise. I'm not sure how quickly that will move to uh, to another referendum. There are interesting divergences anyway between Scotland and Wales on the one hand and England on the other hand. I think England could learn a lot from the emphasis that the Scottish and Welsh governments have been putting on on well-being, on uh, public services. It's not always paying off. Public service performance in those two devolved nations is not as good as it has been in England in some cases. But they have a different way of talking to people and connecting with people locally, and I think a a sensible English government would learn some lessons from that, because it's an incredibly England is an incredibly centralized polity, and that's part of the problem. It's part of that long-standing, deep wound, this deep division that we have in the country.
0: Can I ask you about Scottish nationalism and Scottish economics? A lot of people are saying to me, "Okay, let's say England doesn't give the Scots a referendum." the opportunity to go independent. That's kind of Spain versus Catalan sort of territory where the Scots want it. The English central government says no. That simply ratchets up nationalist feeling, particularly in Scotland, and we as Irish people will understand this dramatically. What does a Scottish independent economy look like?
1: It has some real strengths, obviously. It's got oil, it's got financial services. There are some uh, niche manufacturing areas that thrive in, in export markets. Trouble is, it's a small economy and the areas of the frontier of economics now, they're scale businesses in digital, in any tech area, um, in high-tech manufacturing. You you want a large-scale operation and you want a large market. The reason that America and China are so far ahead in newer industries is because they've got really large domestic markets. So I think for any small economy, be it Catalonia or Scotland, it's just hard to think about thriving if you're not in some broad context of a big market that you can trade into.
0: So in short, they probably have to do a bit, little bit of what Ireland has done. Ireland has kind of piggybacked on large scale companies yeah. with massive markets, i.e. the EU, by saying, come on in, you know, to your, your, your Apples and your Googles and your Facebooks of this world and your Pfizer's and just say, come on in, you can use us as your location. Do you think the Scots would have to do something very similar?
1: I think that's a very plausible route. And of course, not every country needs to be on the technology frontier. So if you can access the goods and services and you get the employment that's the attractive employment through inward investment, then that's fine. You know, that can work really well.
0: And just talk to me, let's go back to, to to Johnson and the extent to which the places that you grew up in have they lent their votes to Johnson or could they actually become conservative? Areas for the first time in hundred years.
1: My sense is that it's quite, it's still quite fragile. Um, the conservative vote has gone up in a succession of elections, so that looks quite solid. On the other hand, the Liberal Democrat vote went up and the Green vote went up as well, and they got punished by the first past the post system. So it isn't entirely obvious to me that this is cementing a perpetual conservative majority. And the other thing about first-past-the-post is that it means every party has to be a big coalition, which is you know, what we were talking about a bit earlier. You have to hold together a, a lot of different elements of, of the party. And that can go wrong. And that's why Labour is at war with itself at the minute, because that uh, the people who've been leading the party didn't bother build, building the coalition. They decided to fight it out with their internal opposition. So, you know, it's a bit of a shock. I grew up at a time when it was unimaginable that those places would ever be anything other than Labour. But then it was also unimaginable not that long ago that Scotland would be anything other than Labour and now it's solid SNP territory. So these shifts do happen. And, um, you know, it's a bit like, what is it, throwing up um, the jigsaw pieces in the air and just they're drifting down slowly and we're not quite sure how they're going to settle. That's a a terrible mixed metaphor, by the way. No, it's (laughs) (laughs) all...
0: The the beautiful thing, let's have a quick a quick thing forward okay Dan? you know what does Labour look like in two or three years time what do the Conservatives look like what does Britain look like
1: two or three years time so my concern is that this wave of anger has delivered a big Conservative majority the government's not going to have any excuse for not sorting out the things that have made people angry but it's really difficult to do the Brexit negotiation will be really tough. There's going to be more uncertainty around that, and adjustment costs, and the uh, regional div- divides, the left behind hands, all that stuff. It's really deep seated. It goes back two generations now. We've got low productivity compared to other advanced economies, and it's been flatlining for ten years. We have haven't invested in infrastructure. We've been cutting back on public services. The scale of what you need to fix that is immense, and even five years with a majority of 80 or more, that's, that's a tough challenge. So I think my fear is that it's going to get more fractious and more divided, and I don't know where that goes. I don't know where that goes. So uh, what I'm feeling particularly gloomy about it, I, I, think, you know, I, I think it could end up, end up in a very dark place, actually.
0: Uh, what might that place look like? I just if I, I just want to tease this out a little bit more, Dan.
1: Trouble is, you start sounding incredibly uh, alarmist when you think about where it might might end up, and um, you know. But we've had an MP murdered in the aftermath of the referendum campaign. We've got terror attacks. Um, there are people. There are people experiencing um, really unpleasant forms of racist attacks on the streets and on the buses because. Those demons have been let loose by the way people talk about it now, the nationalism. Uh, we had the unconstitutional suspending of parliament uh, in the previous Boris Johnson government. So you could, you could if you were particularly alarmist, say, this is, this is Weimar Britain. Now, that's a particularly extreme version of it. And it might be that actually the government starts making progress on some of these regional questions. And as long as things are getting a bit better, we all grumble Um, But we get used to things and we settle down and we carry on being a sort of middling large economy, slowly sliding down the relative rankings internationally. I find it hard to see a sunny upland. So can I see the revival of the grandeurs of Victorian Britain and the restoring of civic pride in the north of England? I'd love to see that. I would gladly dedicate um, the rest of my career to helping bring that about. I find it quite hard to see. You know, I was um, in in a workshop where we were talking about Joseph Bazalgette, who's the guy who built the London sewers in 1860 after the Great Stink, when um, the River Thames got so smelly that even parliamentarians decided something had to be done about it. And so Bazalgette, thinking about this problem of how to uh, in, install sewers and running water through London and its houses, decided what he would do is to build 150 years worth of capacity and it costs something over, I don't know, 200 billion pounds in today's money. Can you see that kind of vision, delivering investment and, and jobs and infrastructure now? Because that's what I think we need to do.
0: Diane, that is, the smelly sewers of London is a perfect way to end this uh, conversation On <laughs> Diane Coyle. That was really, really interesting. Uh, a little bit uh, A little bit worrying for those of us who live beside the UK but certainly it's not inconceivable at all that this is the beginning of something big and that big thing is not particularly pleasant. Diane, thank you so much for joining us from London this morning. Thanks a million.
1: Pleasure, thanks very much.
0: Before we begin, I want to just mention that this episode is brought to you thanks to our Patreon supporters. And to help support the content, and perhaps more importantly, to unlock exclusive comment and scenes and footage and episodes, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Hey Mac, where are you now? Are you uh, back in Buenos Aires? Yeah, I'm staying in a friend's house. I didn't realise, she said, all you've got to do is stay in our house and look after the cats. Oh, man. I didn't realise I'm allergic to fucking cats. <laughs> so I'm actually, I'm, I'm locked in, full of antihistamines, I'm locked into a room. The thing about fucking cats is they can get into rooms.
2: What is this like some sort of panic room or something? <laughs> <laughs> Has your head swelled up like a beach ball?
0: Oh, my eyes were—I pu- looked as if I'd gone three rounds with Mike Tyson last night. <laughs> and I was at a, I was at an amazing thing called a micro theatre here, where you have plays that go on for ten or fifteen minutes. That's it. Oh yeah, it's a big thing. its, it's really nice. I I couldn't understand it all well in Spanish. Right. But I'm—I'm I'm watching as these cats try to get into the. I've, I've locked the doors, and they're trying to get in. It's—it's it's, like—it's like the fucking birds of Alfred Hitchcock here. Ooh, they're coming to get you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Creepy things. Stick with the dogs. Anyway, Mac, listen, Diane Coyle. God, she was she was great, but she was her outlook is very gloomy. It's like the the future in her mind is is very very bleak. But what do you think though? I mean, where do we go with Brexit now? So it's obviously going to happen in the next few weeks, but what's the, going to be the outcome? It's okay. going to be a different ball game now.
0: Well, yeah, no, I think look, look, Diane. Coyle. I mean, I, I, I've known her for many, many years. She's one of the brightest economists in the UK. She's been deep within the UK establishment for many, many years. She knows it, But because she's a northerner, she's got a much better sensitivity than most metropolitan economists and thinkers and columnists have about the north of England. So I would not discount anything she says about the north of England, the midlands of yeah. England, and how dystopian it is. And the, you know, the the list of issues she gave there about anger and feeling left behind and very bad public services and all those sort of things these are really very real and i think the extent of the job of work for the uk now is enormous so i think that is very very key i'm going to come back to that in a yeah. second second thing let's talk about brexit okay so brexit here's the thing right if the Brits want a deal. And I've spoken to people, you know, my mates who, who run the who are basically very, very senior in the European Commission, yeah, they've all yeah. said to me, look, here's the deal. If the Brits want a deal, it has to be the following. They have to be as close to Europe as possible, which means they can't diverge on regulation.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen.
0: and environmental regulation, financial regulation, and labour laws. So the Europeans have said, if you want a free trade deal with us, you have to be as close to us as possible, i.e. Brexit in name only. Right. Because what Johnson has promised is we're going to be swashbuckling, buccaneering, low tax, low regulation. Basically, we're going to turn the UK into an environmental sewer. And as a result of that, we're going to get lower costs, and those lower costs will give us competitive advantage against the European Union. The European Union said, that ain't gonna happen. So I think the hard Brexit that we thought was put to bed may well re-emerge in these negotiations. Right. Okay. Now, my, f- my hope is that Johnson, emboldened by the fact that he's got a majority, is not as hidebound to the extreme Brexiteers as he was actually a couple of weeks ago, so interestingly, The bigger the majority Johnson has, the more he can move to the centre on Brexit and get a deal done and not necessarily upset the UK economy any more than he has to. However, he might think, you know what, I'm the great patriot. I don't think he will. I think he will tack to the centre. I think that's his political instinct. But we've been wrong on this before. So that's the first thing. So I think for Irish people listening, Brexit has not gone away. It's going to come back in the negotiation, and of course, when it comes back, all sorts of other economic and political issues for us will emerge. But the interesting thing, John, is what is Johnsonism? And you know what it is? It's a beautiful alliance of blue collars and red trousers. <laughs> so if you think of that right, you have the blue collar worker from the north of yeah. England allied with the red trouser toff of the south of England in order for Johnson to actually navigate that. He has to become something like, as the Latin Americans say down here, a Peronist. He has to be all things to all men. That means the UK is going to borrow a hell of a lot. So he's going to have to cut taxes for the Red Trousers Brigade, but he's going to have to increase welfare for the Blue Collar Brigade. The only way they can do that if the economy isn't growing strongly is to borrow a fuckload of money. So I think that's what they're going to do. I think you'll see the public sector borrowing requirement of the UK go through the roof. Because he's got to mollify the north of England, who basically have said, we have lent you our votes. We believe that you are more credible than Jeremy Corbyn. We believe in you. Now, of course, he's got to have a bit of reciprocity. So what's that? He's got to do more public infrastructure in the north of England. That means for the first time ever, the Conservative Party has shifted from a party with right-wing DNA to a party with left-wing DNA. And as a consequence of that, they're going to have to be this blamange, which is patriotic Britain. They call it one nation tourism. But what it will actually look like is the Labour Party in the north of England allied with the Conservative Party in the south of England. And that's going to be quite hard to pull off. So
2: that's an interesting thing. So if, if Johnson can satisfy the lefties, shall we say, of the north of England, could that be a permanent switch then from that kind of left Labour and become permanent Conservatives?
0: That's, that's a great question, John, and I've, I've always been interested. What I find really interesting about British politics and the media there is they're so insular that they never look at anywhere else and what has happened anywhere else to see, is there a template? There is a template, but it's not Trump, it's Ronald Reagan. All right,. Okay? Explain that to me.: Yeah, in the United States in the '80s, there was a phenomenon called the Reagan Democrats. These were people who were democratic, largely Irish Americans and Italian Americans who believed in the trade union movement, in Jimmy Hoffa, all that good stuff that's in the Irishman, the movie, yeah, yeah. right? They were left-wing American workers, blue-collar workers. For the first time ever in 1984, they shifted in huge numbers to the Republican Party. OK,
2: how, how come?
0: Explain that one to me a little more. So what you have is Reagan comes in and offers a sort of a Boris Johnson idea. It was called "Morning in America. That was his slogan. And there was that that America was going to go through this great renaissance. A bit like get Brexit done, take back control, yada, yada, right? But what he did is he appealed to blue-collar workers to actually come on board with the Republican ideas of the individual, of hard work, low taxes, you can do well, etc. Now, interestingly, those people have remained Republican. The Democratic Party thought that they would shift for a while. Hold on a second. Why didn't they switch back? Think about it. The background noise is very, very similar, Okay, In the late 70s, early 80s in the United States, right, you have a massive recession prompted by Paul Volcker, who just died this week, who was the former head of the Fed who put interest rates up to 20%, right? So off the back of that, Reagan fights a guy called Walter Mondale. Walter Mondale was an old-style Democrat, a bit bland, etc., He had already fought a guy called Mike Dukakis as well. He had beaten Dukakis, but he fights Mondale and he says to Mondale, I'm going to take your people. So they reach out, the the Republicans reach out into Democratic heartlands of the United States and get those Democrats. Now, the interesting thing is, those Democrats, those Reagan Democrats who went to Republicans are now people like Sean Hannity, Bill O'Reilly, Kellyanne Conway, all the Irish people around Trump. You know the way it kind of really freaks us out? that most yeah, Trumps really yeah, creepy yeah, fuckers. The, the really creepy fuckers are Irish, okay? Because <laughs> we always thought, you know, Irish Americans are nice, they're all John F. Kennedy and all that sort of stuff, right? So they're the Reagan Democrats and they have stayed Republican. Now the question is, this is the interesting, what Johnson has done is he is dividing up his message between economics and culture. Yeah. He's going to be left-wing, more left-wing on economics i.e. to get those working-class people in the north of England to vote for again. But he's going to be more right-wing on culture. And the interesting thing, what we've seen in America and Australia, is that culture trumps economics all the time. So he's going to play that battle. And that means the Conservative Party in the UK is going to be very different. And it also means that the assumption now that those votes are only lent to Conservatives is based on the idea that the Conservatives go back to what they were in the past, which is a party of rich people. But if they do what the Republicans managed to do under Reagan in the United States, there's a good chance that the North of England remains a Conservative fiefdom. Now, the issue then is what happens to the left in England. And I think the lesson from this last week is that extreme left-wing agendas, even though they may make sense, John... Yeah, do not play out well with the electorate. The electorate gets scared. The electorate got scared of Corbyn, and this might be important for our friend Bernie and Elizabeth Warren over in the United States, that if you come with something that seems a little bit too extreme, even if it actually makes sense, you end up scaring the horses and people going to the side. So there's a lot of stuff going on in, in what's happened in the UK. But it brings us to the constitutional issue, John, and that's what's the issue I believe is the most important thing what happens to the Scots, and then what happens to Northern Ireland after this. Because what we're looking at is a is an England in a state of flux. And when the main country in a union is in a state of flux, it means the fragility resonates out from the centre to the periphery, and the periphery itself becomes more radical.
2: So let's talk about Northern Ireland and, and Scotland. Mac, we've spoken many times before about how Brexit could result in the breakup of the UK and perhaps bring about the end of the project that is the Act of Union. But no one actually predicted how big a shift there would be in the profile of the UK electorate or UK politics. So this shift has brought us not just a step closer to a breakup of the union, but actually several steps closer.
0: Would you agree? Absolutely. I mean, look, you know, as as we were said there with talking to, to Diane, basically the big story in the UK is Scotland went... Nationalist almost in total. England went nationalist almost in total. This is the victory of nationalism. This is when I come back to culture trumping economics. Culture is the issue here. What Diane said there is that England, under Johnson, with this massive Tory majority, will not bequeath to the Scots the permission to go independent. Right? Mm. That's exactly what the Spanish government is doing to the Catalans. That means that the Scots will rightly become more nationalistic. Because if you say we want to go independent and England says you can't, then you become increasingly frustrated and much more nationalistic. So if the Scottish National Party are playing the long game, which they are, a bit like Sinn Féin here, or certainly in the north, they might quite want to sit on that and allow nationalism to become more and more the issue because that obscures whatever mistakes they make on the policy side and suddenly it just becomes your flag is bigger than my flag. But ultimately, as the longer that Johnson prevaricates with the Scots, the stronger Scottish nationalism will be, the more frustrated and hurt the Scots will feel and the more likely, I believe, that an independence referendum will go the independent way, not by an overwhelming majority because it's a huge difference between a general election and an independence referendum because the stakes are much, much higher. Basically, you know, a general election is you're just trying to say, OK, well, we still got the same structure, but, you know, I fancy these people, not these people. Independence is a much bigger issue. But clearly what has happened now is that nationalism on the island of Britain has become the issue. And obviously, remember we talked about before, Scottish nationalism can only go one of three ways. Either it can go like Quebec, where it peaks, and then over time, it actually begins to become more of an accommodation with England. Okay, that's number one. Or it happens like the Czech and Slovak velvet divorce in the early 90s, where in actual fact, two mature countries say, look, let's split the difference. It's like a proper divorce. We split the difference. You look, you know, we've got kids involved here. You know, we're going to actually have a decent divorce, and and that, that worked really well. Or it goes like Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia without the fighting. I mean Yugoslavia in terms of the viciousness of the breakup. Where Serbia is England, the dominant player in the union. Croatia is Scotland, the second player in the union. And unfortunately for us, Bosnia is Northern Ireland, the third player, ethnically divided, in the union. So do
2: you think that this breakup, because we are certainly heading that way, but do you think it will happen in this term of government, or will it be a much longer game?
0: I think it'll be a longer game. I think that if you listen to the people who are close to Johnson, the last thing they want to do, because remember, the Conservative Party is the Conservative and Unionist Party, that's its name. Uh, And it believes in the union. So the last thing Johnson will want to be after having delivered Brexit is to be the person who is remembered in history as the person who broke up the union. However... The forces of nationalism are so strong and the forces of nationalism in England are so strong and the forces of nationalism in Scotland are so strong that it's difficult to see him being able to avoid a referendum indefinitely. And if he does, we come back to that point, he will just inflame nationalism and turn Scotland into Catalonia. So, Mac, if
2: Northern Ireland is Bosnia in this analogy, now that the goalposts have completely shifted with for the first time ever, more nationalist MPs elected than Unionist MPs. What's your assessment now of Northern Ireland? Because it's a whole new ballgame.
0: Well, you know, John, I mean, one of the the things that I've always felt and I've talked about in the podcast over the last five or six months, as long as we've been on air, is that the single most important issue for Ireland, for all of us in Ireland, political, economic and social, over the next 20 years, is how do we deal with the profound constitutional changes that are coming down the track with respect to Northern Ireland. Now, I much prefer this idea of a united island than a united Ireland. I think it actually, in some way, blunts the hurt that unionists feel. You know I'm much closer to the unionist family than most people. I feel that it's really incumbent on us to try and figure out what you do with the unionist population, how you make them feel welcome in Ireland, how you make them feel welcome, because... I you know it's it's weird. I feel sorry for them right now because they realize that their biggest enemy is not Irish nationalism, it's English yeah. nationalism. Because English nationalism is rejecting them, is throwing them out of the union, is saying, we don't care about you.
2: Yeah, it certainly is a kick in the nuts.
0: And for many, many years, although I think they felt this, it hasn't been as given voice so explicitly as it has over the last six weeks with Brexit. So what's going to happen is Brexit's going to be done. Johnson's going to do it the deal that he did with the EU six weeks ago. That means that the Northern Ireland is separated economically from the rest of the UK. Yeah. That's the first thing. Second thing is they have now realised, number one, that they have less seats than nationalism in the north. So the combined unionist block has eight seats, the combined Nationalist Bloc has nine seats, and then the one seat is the Alliance Party, which is the middle-of-the-road party. That's, that's a huge psychological blow for unionism. Maybe even more important, John, is that Belfast, which used to be the heartbeat of unionism, this is their capital city, this is the industrial power, this is where they had all their symbols, Belfast City Hall, their unionist flag, etc., has four MPs, of which only one is a unionist, and three are nationalist now. So North Belfast was won by Sinn Féin, West Belfast was won by Sinn Féin, South Belfast was won by the SDLP, and only East Belfast was held by unionists. And even there, the Alliance Party pushed the unionists very, very yeah. close, are much closer than people expected. So all these things are happening at one time. It all means that we need to figure out what's coming next. Now, what's coming next, according to the demographics that we've spoken about at length in, on the show, is a more Catholic-stroke nationalist majority, particularly amongst younger people. The question is, how does that all play out? How do we in the South figure out a pathway that allows unionists to feel welcome in whatever New Ireland emerges? In a way, the nationalists don't have to do anything, they just have to wait. So the nationalist strategy just wait, and demographics will take care of it, run the clock down, and eventually there will be a majority. Unionists, on the other hand, have to come to terms with the fact that the UK doesn't want them anymore. If you throw into that mix Scottish independence, then what you have is you have a significant population of people on the island of Ireland in the northeast who actually want to be Scottish.
2: Yeah. The yeah. unionists, right?
0: That's, that's their desire. But default I, I
2: often wonder is there some sort of given the timing of, of everything now and the, the results of the election, could there be some sort of alliance or closer ties between Northern Ireland and Scotland as a kind of a, an alternative to United Ireland, a kind of a third way, creating a whole new entity?
0: With the Scots? Well, look, the, first of all, the most important thing is Northern Ireland wouldn't last a day on its own. There has been a in the back of the unionists' heads, the more extreme unionists, the idea that we could go it alone in a six-county state, right? Just to put this in context, they would need, uh, the day Northern Ireland went, if it ever, ever went independent as an economic entity, it would have a budget deficit of 31% of GDP on its first day. So it ain't going to happen, right? It ain't going to happen. So that's a pipe dream. So then you've got to think, okay, an alliance, some sort of alliance with Scotland. The, The last thing the Scots... Want is a rump Northern Ireland. They're going to have difficulties figuring out their own pathway to independence. So then you have to have some sort of all island idea. And therefore, I believe that we have got to put in place over a 10 or 20 year period a whole new thinking in the South about how we deal with unionism. Because the tyranny of geography is that they live on the island. And you cannot change that. And that ain't going to go away. Now, you could do what I do and marry them. That could be quite a good idea. We could have an official marriage policy for unionism. Yeah, A bit of border speed dating. (laughs) But the key thing is that this last few days, John, has confirmed what everybody thinks, which is, number one, that England has gone nationalist and might remain nationalist for a long time. Number two, Brexit will be done and they will be out of the EU. Number three, this is going to release forces of nationalism in Scotland who want to remain in the EU and there will be a constitutional crisis. Number four, the reason for Johnson winning in the heartland of Labour is a two or three generational fix, as Diane said, which is going to take them years to do. And in order to actually fix it, they're going to have to spend huge amounts of public money just simply to raise the expectations of the people who voted them. and of course number five the nationalist majority in the north in terms of mps has confirmed the worst fears of unionism that basically northern ireland which is about to celebrate its 100th year in 2021 the question is does it limp into the new century as a political entity or Will it survive not just the next decade, but will it survive the next five or six years? I think it's incumbent on us in the South to make sure that we deal with them and we make them feel welcome.
2: Yeah, I hope it's not too much of an ask.
0: And I suppose at the end of the day, after a week like this, we should quote Lenin, the great Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, who said, and it's a beautiful quote about politics, he said, there are decades when nothing happens, and there are weeks when decades happen. And this has been one of those weeks. Before you go, I am really delighted that the audiobook of Renaissance Nation, updated for Brexit and what it's going to mean for us, is out on Audible this week. This is the first time I've ever done it, and it actually comes from a suggestion from you, the listeners, who said, look, we love the podcast. We don't have a huge amount of time on our hands every week to sit down and read a full book, but we'd love to hear an audiobook. So that's it. Renaissance Nation, the audiobook, out on Audible. Have a gander. would make a really good Christmas present, and I hope you like it.